And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hi guys, Harmony here. Maggie and I got a voicemail that we're going to play before we start the episode today by Megan Kelly. If you would like to send us a voicemail, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking on the voicemail button, and we will play your voice right here on our episode. You can also send us an email at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. And we will go ahead and read your message if you'd like us to on air. So we want to hear from you. Reach out. All right. Bye. Okay. Hey, guys. Um, I'm in awe that I can send you a message with my voice. It's Megan, by the way, in case you're like, is this person messaging me? I'm currently walking through Logan Airport. I love the podcast. I'm so excited. Um... And I'm actually, I'm super excited because I'm kind of an idiot when it comes to feminism. So it's good to hear about it from people that are smarter than me. Um, And I guess what I'm wondering for you guys, not to like insert my art form in here, but will you check out zines at any point? Because I think that's an awesome like underground feminist form of literature. Sorry, I'm running to my Uber right now. Um, that I think might be worth checking out for you guys if you want to do like mini sods or something. Um, so yeah, that's my suggestion. But like, I'm honestly probably gonna. Look, I got cut off, so all I can say is fuck this app. But as I was saying, that might be cool if you're gonna like, I'm sure you're not running out of content. Jesus Christ. But like, if you ever were, anyway, you have yourselves a loyal listener. I'm so, so hyped. It was really well done. Can't wait to actually read books along with people. Thank you very much. I'm going to go catch my Uber. I love you both. She's hilarious. I like how she said it was Megan. Like, I wouldn't know. (laughs) Anyway, Megan, yes, we're definitely, definitely going to do zines at a future point. And maybe we'll even have you on. And thank you so much for listening. And we love you as well. Megan, do you want to say anything to Megan? I don't know. I talked to her like two days ago. <laughs> uh, Megan is uh, one of my closest friends from high school, and I've known her since I was like 13. So, <laughs> but uh, she she has been listening and following along, and she's really been hyping us up because she's dope like that. So thanks, Thank Meg. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to another episode of Rebel Girls. And guess what? This is our last episode for The Witches of New York. It's very bittersweet. It is very bittersweet. We spent a long time talking and thinking about this book, though, and as much as I've enjoyed it, I am excited to move on to other things. (laughs) Six episodes might be a lot. (laughs) Oh my, well, not even including the episodes that we've tried and failed to record. Like, let us be clear. (laughs) I'm editing our second book episode right now, and it is so far... An hour and 30 minutes, but I have 28 minutes left of material to edit, and that's after cutting quite a bit. (laughs) Delightful. Anyway, we are reading today the final section, which is October 17th, 1880, Waxing Moon. We're going from page 501 to the end of the book, which is page 531. So we had quite a few things that we wanted to talk about in this small little section here. One of them being, oh, right. The section begins with the reverend, a, a little a little paper thing about the reverend, a little paper clip about the it's, reverend. It's his obituary. That's the word you're looking for, buddy. I'm a journalist. <laughs> I should know this. I've written obituaries. <laughs> 
speed and aggressiveness of the fire has been attributed to the house's age and style of construction, which dates back to the early 1800s. The building and its contents could not be safe. As of this morning, it has been confirmed that Reverend Francis Townsend, beloved leader of the church's congregation, perished in the fire. His badly burned remains were identified by one of his parishioners, a Mrs. Penelope Piddock. He was a true soldier of God, she tearfully testified. May the angels protect him and heaven accept him. Maggie, you have feelings on this. Do you want to talk about them? I just find it, ugh. He had so many victims who lived. And, like, I just find it really frustrating that the last thing we see about him is just about, like, it starts respected preacher dies in tragic fire, right? And I totally get it, right? Because, like, Beatrice is still recovering from the shock of it. Her story with it is tied into weird implications of her own witchcraft and magic, you know? Um, And the other survivor, as far as we know, is a little girl. So, like, part of me understands, especially, I think, in this era of, like, the Me Too movement and stuff, and where we're really seeing women come out for the first time and, like, talk about their experiences of surviving various kinds of assault. I get the fact that, like, neither of them felt the need to go to the police or anything. I kind of extra get it because of the fact that, like, he's dead and no matter what, he's dead, he can't do anything to other people anymore. But, like, it's also just so frustrating as the reader to, like, see him go down in a good light, you know? I totally get it. I completely understand it. But it frustrates me so, so much. And it extra frustrates me because Sister Piddock never really comes to know what this person that she really idealized was kind of like doing and up to and like the bad things he was up to so like he dies and she still feels reverence for him and that makes me feel deeply uncomfortable as well and like i think it's in a really purposeful way like this isn't to say that i think that this was a bad writing choice or anything i think this is like really true to life what happens you know but it just as a reader you just want to be like no i agree that's what i was going to add i really enjoyed that The author chose to end the Reverend story in this way because it does feel true to life. And no one's going to believe Beatrice. No one's going to believe the street child. And they're both women and women are not respected at this time. They aren't really always respected now. The stories of women aren't always respected. And also, if the victims came forward, they would be implicated in his death. Right? Like, they could get in trouble. Especially Beatrice, because she did set it on fire. As we talked about last time, I think we kind of came to the consensus that it really wasn't with the intention of killing him, but, like, that was still the the side effect of it. So I guess that there is, like, almost a certain level of the fact that it's lucky that no one really... From this newspaper article and the way we end the story, it seems like no one looks into the burning down of this building more than just as, like, an accidental burning because the building is old. So, like... Yeah, I mean, the burning seems to be the result of both Lena McLeod's... Is that how you say her last name? McLeod? I think it's McLeod. McLeod. Lena McLeod's curse and the wish from little mini Adelaide that we saw in in the last section. So... And also Beatrice's wish on the witch's ladder. Oh, yeah. To be free. She wanted to be free. But she she wasn't wishing for the reverend to die, but it, there was also maybe some sort of indifference there that we kind of talked about last time. Yeah, I think that, like, she doesn't necessarily want to be the hand that struck him down. But, like, I think understandably the fact that he didn't make it out alive when she did is not not necessarily the thing that's holding her back from healing, right? Like, that's not the recovery process here. Had he lived, do you think that he would have gotten his comeuppance in another way? Do you think that his death, I mean, we can see that his death has, you know, put him down in history in a positive light. But had he lived, do you think that law enforcement would have taken care of him and people would have seen his misdeeds? I think that's a really complicated question. You want to say yes, right? But at the same time... I think it really depends what would have been left as evidence by the fire, to be perfectly honest, because, like, I, there's gotta be evidence of what he was doing around the building somewhere, you know? He really wasn't being 
that careful if we're being honest because he had the collectors coming in and actually taking care of like the bodies and things like that but like if the church actually just 100% burned to the ground and he still lived like I think it could kind of go either way to be perfectly honest with you I think that I think that potentially in a case like that maybe Beatrice would have a stronger case because she knows you know of at least one more missing victim who she could you know and things like that I think that if she had if the little the mini Adelaide the little girl continued to have Eleanor and Beatrice and Adelaide support she might also feel more comfortable speaking out but like I really don't think we're given enough context in this book to really kind of know what way it would go I think also like this book admirably talks about a lot of heavy topics, but it is it does have a more lighthearted tone for the most. Things work out for our main characters in a way that's like really fun and enjoyable to read about. And I think that had the Reverend lived, it would have been potentially a hard sell for readers if like things still didn't work out for our main characters. Because I think that to a certain extent in a book like this, like the contract you're making with the reader is that things are going to work out well in like a good way. Yeah, I agree. It's a it's a fun book and it's it's a little bit of a feel good book in some ways and a little bit idyllic and self-serving fantasy, not self-serving to the author. But like I was talking to Maggie about reads that I needed and this I, I wanted a book like this one because this is the sort of book that plays into my own fantasy about what I want for the world. This book, oh, excuse me, is happy and escapist in like the best yes. way. And I think that what sets this book apart from so many other books that are like it is that it's able to maintain that wonderful tone while really diving into all of the topics that we've been talking about for the last six episodes. You know, like it manages that balance of being able to be an overall happy book while also like talking about real life issues. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Do you want to say anything else about the Reverend's death? No, he just really fucking pisses me off. <laughs> um, Do we swear in our podcast? I don't know. Have you been bleeping me out? <laughs> no, no, no. We're, we're explicit. Our theme song has the word bitch in it within the first 10 seconds. <laughs> That's true. I forgot about that. That was also my pick. I'm the one with the sailor's mouth, apparently. <laughs> so let's talk about Mr. Chong and Malthus. Yeah. So I thought this was really interesting, and I almost kind of talked about it in the last section, but that would have been too spoilery. We find out here that, I mean, we, we knew all along that he was pushing the Reverend to do these evil things, or that he was watching and wanting the Reverend to do these evil things, and here he describes him as weak. You know, he he's convinced that he will find another man who is stronger to take up the evil deeds, but he also... He got a hold of a blackened oyster shell, which is the same shell that we are led to believe was used by Lena McLeod, McLeod when she cast her curse. And he can feel the magic lingering it from from it, he says here. I'm gonna I'm gonna read this paragraph if that's okay. So on 504. Mm-hmm. shell, Mr. Basham held it to his nose and sniffed, then ran his fingers along its sharp edge. He could feel the magic lingering from where the girl had touched it from her well. In his long existence, he'd brought about the demise of many witches merely by encouraging man's hate, man's greed, man's hubris, man's intolerance. Taking down these new witches would require careful consideration and planning. A small part of him was glad for the challenge. The hunts in Europe had gone so smoothly. Salem had been far too easy a task. These women were another matter altogether. There was time yet, though, to observe them, maybe even turn them to his ways. Time was the greatest advantage a demon had. So, this to me was really important because I think what Amy McKay is doing here is maybe setting us up for a, a an archetype, I guess, of the good witch, right? And we see here from this section that there are such things as bad witches, and they can be used for malice as well. And by having, by including a demon in the story, she seems to check off the sort of good versus evil narrative, 
right? Because we have something in here that is purely evil. And we may not think of it evil in the same ways in this book as, like, we're taught to through traditional Christianity, but it's still there. Yeah, I think it's interesting, though, because I don't think she leans on that archetype too heavily in the sense that Mr. Pashalm is like, he doesn't actually show up very often. And this is one of the only times we actually see his point of view. So I totally agree that, like, we do have this dichotomy set up, but it's at way more of a distance, I think, than you would typically anticipate from this kind of story. Yeah. And I wonder, too, apparently she does have at least one sequel out. I don't know if we'll see more, but I wonder if she's going to use that in the sequel. I think it's important that he doesn't show up very much because the story plays a lot with evil being less of a godly thing and more of a human thing, right? Yeah, for sure. And it's also interesting, too, because we're dealing with witches and they are, witches are inherently human, but they're also human with a sort of like divine power. So there's a lot of focus on this book, I think, with us creating our own destiny and manifesting. And I I don't know, I just think it's really interesting how that contrast between divine and humanity plays in this book. Yeah, I do too. And I think it's also interesting that like, even the divine creature, so to speak, right, like this demon he is also not in charge of his own fate and things like that. Like he really wanted Beatrice, right? Uh, Earlier on 504, we see that like, he feels he's made a mistake with entrusting the Reverend to kind of take her down. But also he has to almost like revise his earlier statements, right? Like it's not time yet. Kind of like dot, 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 apparently, you know, because he thought it was time and things like that. So I think that it's interesting to see him make mistakes. And I think it makes him seem a little bit more human, right? It wasn't Beatrice escaped because Beatrice was really strong, as was Lena, as was the little girl. And it was kind of like this almost there were almost four bits of magic here, right? Because like it was the three that the victims perform, plus Eleanor's like, find me Beatrice magic. Plus, we get the little bit of magic coming from Dr. Brody's father being like, no, she's alive, like confirms for Brody. So like, there's so much happening here. And it's all like her escape is all based on that. But then to a certain extent, it's also based on a mistake that this demon made, right? Like he over trusts his servant and things like that. So I think that's also an interesting spin on it as well. Like not to take away from the power that Beatrice and all of those other women show in their escape, but like, I enjoy the fact that the mistake makes Pasham slightly more on a human level as well. Yeah, I think that's interesting because the other divine creatures that we see in this book are the Deerlies, and they are given human attributes as well. Like Twitch is in love with Beatrice, that's continually a thing, and they make mistakes as well too. I'm wondering if that's a comment specifically on witchcraft or if that's like, a comment on how we think about divinity. It's also strange, though, because Mr. Psham, I think in the last section, even though he's appearing as a human, like, that is a disguise, and he does not have a human appearance. And there's, like, one section where she talks about his mouth being, like, this weird sliver gap thing. And I I think that was in the nightmare she had about him oh. that the dearlies gave her. No, I, it comes up again, too, from, in, like, one of his little sections. I don't remember where. I've been doing a lot of reading of this book. It's a little hard to keep track of. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. I feel you. But it definitely comes up again. So I just think that that's, like, an interesting detail if we're supposed to think of these divine creatures as being human. I don't know. What do you think about that? I don't know if we're necessarily supposed to think about them as being human. I think that whenever you're creating any kind of like villainous situation, though, where your villains are supernatural, you need to give them some sort of weakness, right? And any because otherwise, there's like no point, right? Because in actuality, if these creatures were always at full power, and they were always right, like humans don't stand a chance at all. I guess that this is coming more from a craft standpoint in that sense than otherwise. But like, I think that in this book, giving them slightly more human characteristics is part of their weakness is purposeful. Do you think we can connect that back to feminism at all? The whole divinity having 
human characteristics or human faults? Sure we can. I don't have any thoughts on it, though. (laughs) To be perfectly honest with you. I guess it's hard for me because I see it much more from a witchcraft standpoint, and I can't speak for all people who practice witchcraft, but a running theme seems to be throughout that gods, I mean, even if you just look at any sort of mythology ever, gods are not imperfect, right? Like, they're beings like we are. Let's see. Let's move on to the new moon, unless there's more you want to say about that. Nah, I'm chill. Let's talk about love. So the the last part of this book is called, one of the last chapters is called Home. So something that I found interesting and mildly frustrating about this section was that Georgina comes into play again. And they're like, now we see sort of hints of fruition of that uh, kind of more potentially romantic relationship between herself and Eleanor, which I think is all well and good and really, really cute. My only, like, question slash lingering feeling about it is I feel like we were kind of left a little bit lacking with, like, how things wrapped up with Lucy and sort of the drama with Cecil Newland in a couple of ways. The drama with Cecil Newland to me felt a little bit kind of, like, all over the place because he goes from, or at the very least, Eleanor blames him for the arsenic poisoning of her tea, which is, like either attempted murder or attempt to frame her for murder, really. Which is, like, real intense. (laughs) And then the next thing we see him do is evict her from the shop, which are two very, very, very different reactions to that situation. But then, like, is it supposed to be implied that now he's totally gotten his revenge and, like, it's done now because, like, she doesn't have the shop anymore? I'm just confused about how that wrapped up because it seems to me, as a reader, That if someone is willing to either try and murder you or frame you for murder of, like, one of your customers, then, like, evicting you from your shop is probably not the end of your story, right? And also, Lucy runs away, which is really, really, really great. But I feel like Eleanor never, like, we never see Eleanor kind of come to peace with any of that. Like, we never see her really come to terms with, like, the ending of her relationship with Lucy. And then all of a sudden, we're kind of, like, implying that a new love interest is moving in. So, like, I really like Georgina and everything. Don't get me wrong. It's just, like, a lingering feeling of question that I have from the last part of the book as we move into this ending here. I don't know if, again, like, maybe in the Christmas sequel or if there's going to be another book in the series, like, we'll open that up again. It's just something that struck me as being, like, I wish I could have gotten a little bit more. I think partially because in the first half of the book, we see a lot from Eleanor's point of view. And then in the second half of the book, we don't so much anymore. We see a lot more from Beatrice and Adelaide's point of view. Totally fine. But when Eleanor's point of view drops off a little bit more, then, you know, we we get less of her like emotional resolution that I feel like I wanted as a reader if we're going to move into an, a new love interest. I mean, I think that for her... The emotional resolution would be getting this new house, right? And, like, being able to be back into her, like, little witch's cottage. I mean, it's not her. For people who did not read the book, (laughs) Eleanor is, Eleanor, Adelaide, and Beatrice are allowed to live in Brody's manor. And that's kind of presented as being, like, near the Bronx, maybe? I don't know. There were trees there, I guess, back then. I don't know. It sounds like it's uptown, and there are trees, and... They don't technically have the shop anymore, but women come in and can still talk to them and they can still provide some sort of services, but it's like much more underground now. And to me, that seemed like a good resolution for Eleanor because that's kind of what Eleanor's arc a little bit was presented as in the beginning. I mean, yes, we had the stuff with Lucy, but like Eleanor's a witch. She has known that this is what she wants to do. She tried nursing, but when we meet her, She knows that she just wants to be a wise woman witch, and the city is a little bit much for her. It's hard. There's no plans. There's, like, there's less she can do there, and there's it's demanding of her in ways that she's a little bit too sensitive for, right? Like, the hustle and bustle just aren't... It doesn't help with, like, her intuitive practice. So for me, Eleanor's ending was actually pretty satisfying. A, because... Yes, Lucy gets out, and I don't know, I mean, you and I are different people, but, like, I personally have tried that whole, like, wrapping up of a relationship thing, and maybe there are lingering feelings for Lucy, but I think 
I think that to a certain extent, and I, I know it's true for a lot of people, you just kind of like need to fall in love again in order to truly solve that like lingering heartbreak, maybe. I think that makes a lot of sense. I just wish we got maybe one more scene of Eleanor like processing that more emotional side of things because it all gets wrapped up and caught up in the search for Beatrice, which absolutely 100% makes sense to overtake anything else that's happening, right? Because Beatrice is in danger. I think for me, just as a reader, like I needed one more scene of Eleanor thinking about Lucy, even if it's not like, like this idyllic resolve, right? Like, I think I just needed one more scene because at the beginning, she spends so much time thinking about Lucy that to me, she doesn't even like process, really process the fact that she's happy that Lucy got away, right? Even though she probably clearly is because she was in this terrible relationship. Like we get one or two lines about it in the scene where she's like actually talking to Cecil, but you know, he's threatening her. So she's a little understandably preoccupied. It was just, I don't know. And like, again, we have definitely different personal preferences and things like that. It's just for me as a reader, I wish we got one more, more introspective Eleanor section before the end of the book. I get that. I think though, as the book continues, and I could be wrong, but I'm revisiting some of this stuff that we've talked about with Eleanor right now in my editing <laughs> yeah. of our podcast. So I'm like rereading some of these sections. But I think the last time she met Lucy at the Statue of Liberty, Lucy does tell her that she isn't ready to be in an she isn't ready to be like in a gay relationship. She that's not what she wants. She wants this privilege and this life that that affords her and she's not brave enough she says to do that and for me I think that is kind of like that's the only closure Eleanor is gonna get and I think we we see less about Lucy and worrying about that after that point like after that it's more oh no Lucy's in a bad situation I need to help her yeah I think that makes a lot of sense I could I could see that point of view It's a small thing. Like I said, it was just like jarring for me as I was reading, you know? I get that. And I think for me, it just stood out because I remember thinking it was like a little bit strange the first time I read it. And it also stuck out to me the second time I've read it. So like, that was kind of my thing, you know? That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I don't know. What about, were you dissatisfied? It sounds like you're dissatisfied with Cecil Newland's ending as well. I'm not dissatisfied with it necessarily. I just feel like if somebody's really that hellbent on sending you into destruction, that he might be back, you know? (laughs) Yeah, maybe he will come back. But maybe for the time being, to like wrap it up, is your dog there? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For anyone, I know you guys can't all see this, but Maggie just like stared off into the distance and her eyes went all crinkly and she gave like the most blissed out smile. (laughs) She came to sleep with me. (laughs) I was listening to you though. Yes, I I agree with what you're, with what you were going with. (laughs) I don't even remember what I was going to say. I got distracted by your dog too. Uh, you were just talking about the fact that, like, it, it would potentially make sense for Cecil to come back, but, like, this was probably just a good way to wrap up this current narrative, which I think makes sense. Yeah, because the, the current danger, I mean, it does imply at the end that, like, yes, things are better, but there are still, like, problems that they haven't dealt with. Yeah, for sure. So I guess they're just, like, they're out of current danger right now because he probably doesn't know where they are. Yeah, that's totally true. That's totally true. And I mean... His power over them was, in a lot of ways, directly because he became their landlord. But, like, Brody owns his house, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of... It would be more complicated for him to exact revenge from now on. I also think, too, especially in this time period, there's power to having a man on your side. And, like, Brody is now one of them and on their side. Which he was before, but, like, probably less to Cecil Newland's knowledge. Yeah, and I mean, now they're living in the house that he owns. So it's a little bit different. Short, like, personal anecdote. (laughs) I was with my friend and my partner, who is a man, and, and we were walking down the street in my neighborhood, and we saw this woman getting assaulted. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But 
I and I uh, kind of have some triggering with that and with seeing assault. So my first reaction, which is stupid and people should not do this, was to like get in front of her and the man. And we were there for like an hour and he kept on circling and trying to assault the woman. And but the point is, I felt really brave doing that because my boyfriend was there who was not getting physical, but like he went up and stood next to her before me and my friend did. Like he just stood next to her to be a deterrent and it did serve as a deterrent. So I don't know. Men, be better allies. God damn it. Cause you know, you have a lot of power and you're seen as really strong and you are a deterrent. Yeah. So speak up for us. And also thanks to the men in our lives who are already, you know, good allies and working really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Did you want to talk about Adelaide and Brody's ending? I was I was happy with it. Like I think that as we've talked about before, like neither of us was particularly like super into Adelaide and Brody together. The only thing that kind of struck me is just like again because we got less because the second half of the book is so so plot driven, we get less of the like introspection, so we get less of like their personal feelings on what's happening in their individual storylines. So like something that did strike me a little bit was what we talked about last time there was like for Adelaide there was a lot of emotional whiplash going on between like feeling guilty and feeling like she can't have Brody and then all of a sudden Beatrice is back and she's like screw it all of those feelings are gone which is great like I want Adelaide to be happy but like I just wish we could have gotten even just like one more page between those two parts of her like reconciling those feelings within herself because it it just feels a little whiplashy at the end where she's like she's in she's out she's in she's out but again, you know, that can also be really true to life as well, I think. Yeah. But like, I'm happy for them, right? Like, she, like, they're in a good place right now where, like, and we should also, I think, mention for people who haven't read, Brody is not living in their manor house with them. He had, like, a little cottage in the back where he was like, I'd feel more comfortable there anyways. So, like, you guys can just take the house. I think that for me, that ending was good. Because at the end of the day, also, they all haven't known each other for that long. You know, the book takes place over a couple of months. And especially Adelaide and Brody's, like, their friendship, I think, at this point is pretty deep, right? Like, they all went through some traumatic shit together that forms deep bonds quickly. But, like, their their romantic (laughs) relationship is still pretty new. So, like, I was really satisfied with the fact that, like, their romantic relationship was kind of left as still being budding, right? And, like, they're still getting to know each other and stuff. And, like, I really enjoyed that versus, like, any kind of really, like, insta-lovey thing. Which kind of happened a little bit at the beginning of the book. But I think that we totally moved away from that sort of trope by the end. And we're just left with, like, this really beautiful friendship that's, like, leaning into relationship and... I liked it. I just, I really liked it. I enjoyed that too. I think that it's important that it's a slow burn because I think that makes it more meaningful for us. And I also think it's important because it makes the relationship less the focus of the book and less the focus of their lives because quite frankly, a lot of crazy shit has happened in their lives. (laughs) And I think that's kind of how relationships, at least at the beginning, right? It's a little bit different once you're like, you are my life partner, um, you know. Then, then people have every right to take up more space in your life. <laughs> but I think relationships, especially at the beginning, should not be necessarily your focus. Because ain't nobody got time for that. Welcome to Books and Booze, a bookish and wine and juice podcast. While Books and Booze is predominantly about, well, books and booze, we do alternating episodes featuring true crime cases. So whether you're a fan of books, drinking, or true crime, this is the place for you. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podcast Republic, wherever you get your podcasts from. Pour yourself a glass of whatever you enjoy and enjoy the show. Oh, no, it's on page 508. Okay, I got it. So context for this, uh, because it'd be too long to read all of it. But context for this quote is that Beatrice is bedridden as she's recovering and she's kind of receiving visitors who are, you know, offering her comfort. I really like this scene specifically because I think it, it they offer it in a really respectful way. Everyone kind of comes in and is like, I'm here for you. Whatever you need, I'm here. And then they kind of like back off and let her do her own thing. So after Brody visits, Adelaide pulls him aside and goes... 
Taking Brody aside, Adelaide had whispered in his ear, and I'd like to propose an intimate experiment with you whenever you're feeling up to it. With Beatrice home and her guilt fading, she'd made up her mind to not only entertain the notion of love, but to pursue it. This time it was Brody's turn to blush. I know, right? Scandalous. So, like, it's just a really short mention and everything, but, like, also, I just, I wish we could have just seen, like, a hair more of that thought process, right? Because, like, it implies that there was a thought process there, and, like, the back and forth for me is a lot. I think potentially it's because, like, this is just not how I function as an adult. Like, I'm very much an overthinker, so for me, my whiplash my whiplash maybe to other people comes with for me with like so much thinking that I kind of assume that when I'm reading a book like this that like I'm gonna get a little bit more of that context because we do get it at the beginning of the book and it fades away at the end of the book but like it's not that big of a deal you know it's cute it's sweet (laughs) they're adorable in the end like I'm not mad about it you know Give us more. We want more of these characters. Yeah, that's that's it. That's really, I really just enjoyed this book and like would read a full length sequel, you know, like I'm excited to, especially I think more towards December, even if we don't do an episode about it, I'm probably going to pick up the Christmas sequel just to like see what's up, you know, maybe I'll give you my thoughts in like a quick book review if we don't do a, a whole episode about it. But They're just cute. And I like seeing the inner workings of their minds. You know, I think that's something Amy McKay does really well throughout this entire story is making a book that has three so distinct characters and they all think different ways and they all have different feelings. And like, I think that for a, you know, female identifying author, like that's sort of a no brainer. Right. But I think that for me, with some books that I've read, they're I haven't read as many books as I wish I could have that have this many main characters who are so distinct, who are all women. It's refreshing. That's true. A lot of female authors still write a lot about men, and that's fine. Oh, yeah, for sure. Whatever you want to do, but it is nice to have a book that is so focused in the feminine. I agree. Train tracks. What's the train tracks? What are you talking about with the train tracks? Oh, the man on the train tracks talks to Beatrice again. Is it the genie? Is that Yeah, the genie man. The djinn? He comes back? I think I missed that. I missed that Hold twice. Up. Haha. Four, 524. Got it. I'm ready. I'm ready, Mags. Beatrice remained silent, letting the moment stand. Before long, her reverie was interrupted by someone tapping her on the shoulder. Miss, a gentleman's voice said. Remember me? It was the man who'd bid her to touch the obelisk on her journey to New York. Yes, she said, turning to look after the rest of her party, who were making their way back to the sleigh. I'm leaving tomorrow, he said, gold tooth glinting in the firelight, but I've got something to give you before I go. My friends are leaving. I won't let them go without you, he promised. Then, reaching his hand into the fire, he pulled out a glowing ember. Trust me, he said. Take it. Strangely, she had no fear. She trusted him completely, just as she had the day she'd first encountered the obelisk. More than that, she trusted herself. I'm Beatrice Dunn. I am strong. I'm a witch. Closing her eyes, she let him place the ember in her palm. She felt no burning, no pain. Hold it tight, he ordered. Don't be afraid. Clutching the ember in her grasp, she felt it turn cold. When she opened her eyes in her hand, the man was gone. All that remained was a stone scarab sitting in her palm, smooth and sparkling like the granite of the obelisk. She put it in her pocket and ran for the sleigh, planning to keep to herself for now, or perhaps forever. Ah! I do remember that now. Oh my gosh! And it, it's while she's looking at that that she thinks of the idea of kind of becoming a mentor to new witches. Like, she's staring at the scarab when it comes to her. I just thought that was interesting because, like, I thought... I don't know. I just thought it was inter- an interesting way to leave room for more, right? That he comes back, that he routinely... I mean, like, he's the one who makes... who Not makes her, but, like, t- tells her to touch the obelisk in the first place. Like, he unleashes this power in her. And then he comes back and he helps her get another magical object. And it's almost like that secondary thing helps release like a new level of magic within her, right? Like she's strong. She's Beatrice Dunn. She's a witch. Like she's ready to take all of that power and like then give it to other people. I just thought it was a really nice moment. I wonder, well, yeah, you're using the word release, but I think the important thing is that it's not necessarily giving her power. Like it's coming from herself. She now accepts herself as a witch. She now accepts herself as someone who is strong and she's okay with that. And again, we talked about this several times throughout this this podcast series. 
But the idea of strength in this book is very much about coming together. And here she is. She's discovered she's strong. And then she follows it up with, I'm going to use my strength to help others, to help them join our collective coven, essentially. Yeah, for sure. I do just think it's interesting, though, that like at both of these pivotal moments for her, that like this genie is involved, you know? Yeah, I would like to know more about him. All we really get to know is that he's a djinn and he's been following the obelisk. Yeah, and that he, like, chose Beatrice. And that he chose Beatrice. Or, I don't know, does she choose herself by doing the witch's ladder and going on that adventure? I think at the very least he acknowledges her choice. Yes, yes. I think I think that's a fair way to put it. I think that she makes the choice for sure. But I think that at the very least at the beginning with the obelisk, there's something about kind of like a magical creature and a, and a magical object, I think, acknowledging and accepting her choice that like does play a part into her magic, potentially. Yeah. Aww. Okay. Wow. Do you want to say anything else about that? No, I think we should probably move on to our overall impressions just because we're already at like 40 minutes. I know some of that's dead space, but. <laughs> that is true. Well, my overall impression of this book, I think, it is well-written. I love that it's something that I can lose myself in and that it is a fantasy book and that it's not hard to read, right? Because there are a lot of books I love, but they're hard to read. This is like, it's a fun book to read. And I really enjoy that. But getting to delve into it deeper with you, I've also found that it's also substantial as well as being fun. And I think that I'm one of those people that sometimes thinks it has to be one or the other. And mm. I'm glad that it doesn't. And I'm glad that I was able to find that in this book. What are your general impressions? I think for me, my like thoughts about it didn't really change from reading it the first time to reading it the second time. I think for me, it's still a really solid four out of five book. I agree with a lot of what you said. It's really well written. It's a lot of fun. I love the female friendships that we have in this story. I love how true to life it is. I love the ways in which McKay dives deeper. And I just think that for me, it's not a five out of five because I would still change a couple of things about it, right? Like there's just certain things about it, like whether it's preference or whether it's things that I wish we dove deeper into, but that's not a bad thing, you know? I really, really enjoyed it, and I think that it's a really solid choice for anyone who's looking for a book that got that happy, feel-good quality to it, but, like, you still want to think, you still want to be reading a book that's, like, really well-written and is really gonna, you know... I think the nice thing about this book is that even if you decide, I don't know, sometimes I read a book and I just like, I don't want to really think about it, right? Like, I just want to like read the book and have fun and enjoy it. And then like, that's it. I think even if that's the way you read this book, there are still like bold themes in there that you're going to get something like real out of it, you know, something substantive, like you were saying. Yeah. But if you wanted to pick it apart like we do, you can also do that. (laughs) Yeah, we, it held up. (laughs) It held up a lot. I was not expecting it to hold up this well. Not because it's a bad book, but because when I read it, I was reading it purely for fun. Do you have any parts that are like you wish? Well, you kind of talked about it a little bit. I think, do, do you want to elaborate at, at all, though, on the parts that were your least favorite? Or is that good for you? I mean, I would say like the for me, the least favorite parts are less like plot points that I wish didn't exist so much as like I wish we talked a little bit more about POC characters and things like that yes I agree but that's really my only like least favorite part I would say I feel like the thing about like parts that I didn't like I don't really want to harp on that because I did enjoy this book a lot and I think also we got critical enough in like the last five episodes (laughs) that like for people who have been here this entire time they know the things I want to change I do kind of want to highlight some of my favorite parts, though, because I really want to just, like, I loved, loved the scenes where, like, they're all trying to figure out how Beatrice's power works. And it's, like, just different scenes of, like, Beatrice by herself trying to figure it out, and then Beatrice with Eleanor trying to figure it out, and then Beatrice with Adelaide and Brody trying to figure it out. And I loved that puzzle piece coming together. But I think that my absolute favorite parts of the book were actually when Beatrice was talking to Judith Dashley and, like, just able to give her so much comfort and so much support by letting her know that Billy was, like, I don't know, those scenes just warmed my cold, cold heart to such deep depths. Like, I I really loved those parts. I understand. I think my favorite parts were any time when Adelaide, which happens quite a lot, 
when Adelaide and Eleanor are concerned about Beatrice and showing it in different ways, because for me, I just, I love being taken care of. (laughs) And it's just like, it's such a nice thing, even if it's like a little bit annoying that they care enough about her to kind of have these differences of opinion and like little arguments and trifles about it. Yeah, for sure. I also really loved this second time around because, as we all know, Beatrice was not my favorite character when we started this podcast. But reading it the second time around and revisiting this book, I really love Beatrice coming into her own and understanding her own strength. And that's something I'm going to take with me, I think, not to get too cheesy. But, like, she became a lot more inspirational for me. And it, I, like, teared up this time reading about her discovering her strength. And as Maddie was reading that passage where she gets the ember and decides to mentor new witches, I could not control myself. It's a good part. It's a good part. Least Um, favorite again, people of color, I think. And I don't think the word to describe the Romani people was necessary, but I'm like forgiving of the author for it because I didn't know that much about it going in. And I think that's just something we need to educate people about more or everyone needs. Yeah, it's something we should all be educated about, but it's something that I think that we actively need to educate people about more. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's potentially possible that like maybe we did miss some coding that was supposed to be denoting people of color. But I will say we both read this book twice and didn't really catch on to anything except for potentially with Sophie Miles. So yeah, it would have been cool to have if if those things were supposed to be active and present, I would have liked them to be more in the forefront because I didn't I didn't get that so much. I mean, it is kind of having listened to other people talk about books and, you know, talking to people of color about books and people of color about people of color. I've noticed more that sometimes it's kind of nice when you don't give cues to someone's race, right? Because no matter what the world, and this is a fantasy novel, like anyone could be it. Yeah. I, reading this book both times, was not paying enough attention to cues of people's appearance because, quite frankly, that's not what I catch on to usually when I'm reading anyway. So I don't know if there were certain cues that specifically implied that characters were white. And they could, they could have been anything because it is a plot, it is a fantasy world. And I think that people should feel free to imagine what they need to or what they want to or what best suits them. Especially if it's not, you know, in the text. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fair point. What else did I want to talk about? Let's see. Oh, I want to talk about this book. Is it a feminist book? Do you think? Yeah. <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. We're going to try. I'm going to try and do that for every book because I think some of our books coming up might, we might have a little bit more of a question, but I definitely think this is a feminist story. It has mostly female characters. It's mostly about female friendships. And female strength in many different forms as well. Yes. And just to be clear, we're not going to be just looking about like cis, four cisgender females, but sometimes we, you know, fall into the trap of relying on that language. Yeah. So I, I definitely think that it's it's a book about friendship and not romance, and that's important. And all of these characters are well-rounded, all of the, the woman characters that we see, at least the main ones. So I definitely think this is... I, I mean, it's a book about female empowerment. So <laughs> Yeah, for sure. 100%. No question in my mind. I think, again, like we were saying, it it could maybe do better in some aspects in terms of being more intersectional, but I I definitely think it's a feminist story. Yeah, I mean, and to be fair, I think that we need to give credit where credit's due. This book is intersectional in a lot of ways, like, in many, many, many ways. So, like, just putting that out there. It's not just a feminist book. I think in a lot of ways it's an intersectionally feminist book, which is, I think maybe when we're reading books like this, almost the most with a more important question because i think that there are lots of uh contemporary books coming out not contemporary in the sense that like they're set in our world contemporary in the sense that like they're you know read in like the last 10 15 years that like are feminist but are kind of white feminist you know like so i think that a piece of praise i have for this book is that i I think it really does a good job at not just being, like, feminist, but being intersectionally feminist in a lot of ways. Not the perfect intersectional feminist book, but, like, also, I don't think there is really one perfect intersectionally feminist book out there. So, like, I'm impressed by that quality about it as well. 
That's true. And it's also, it's hard to write about experiences that aren't your own. So. For sure. You can't be perfectly intersectional because we all don't have the same experiences. Yeah. And it, it, it definitely, I mean, it deals with class. It deals with sexuality. So. And it, it deals with ableism a little bit. Yeah. What are you taking? Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, let's do that. All right. So I wrote this down and Maggie apparently is graciously allowing, allowing this. Oh, I think it's fun. Can we sort? Oh, good, good, good. Oh, yay. Can we sort the main characters into Hogwarts houses? Do you want to go first? Yeah. So let's start with Beatrice. Should we do Beatrice, Adelaide, Eleanor, and like Brody, maybe? Yes, that's what I was thinking. Okay, cool. Four, four characters. Four characters, four houses. I think that Beatrice is a Hufflepuff. Really? Yeah. That's my house for listeners. I think that <laughs> Brody and Eleanor are kind of Ravenclaws. Okay. And I think that Adelaide is Slytherin. I also think that Adelaide is Slytherin. I'm a Slytherin. I think that Brody is also a Ravenclaw. Yeah. Maggie is a Slytherin. That's funny. I think Eleanor is Hufflepuff because, although she is kind of solitary, so I could see that. And I guess Ravenclaw does work with the witchcraft. But as a fellow Hufflepuff, like, Eleanor is a little bit of a homebody. And she's like... A little bit about, you know, like, she she just wants everyone to feel okay, and that's what a lot of her practice is about, right? Like, she, her, her entire business is based off of giving people tea, and then, like, talking through them with their problems, and helping people. And to me, that seems like a very, very Hufflepuff thing. See, I totally agree, and I was almost gonna put Eleanor in Hufflepuff until I was thinking back to a conversation we had three, four, five episodes ago about the way, about the very scientific way in which like Eleanor thinks about her witchcraft and her magic and like her grimoire and things like that. And I really think that like she is all of those Hufflepuff qualities for sure. But like for me, just like her very orderly way of thinking about the world and like the way that she breaks down her magic into such a precise like science of magic put her more in Ravenclaw for me. But, of course, that's why, you know, these are archetypes and not actual, like, you can't actually just shove everyone into one box, you know? That's true. The Hogwarts houses are deeply problematic. No one is one thing. I also, though, I see Ravenclaw as being more inquisitive. And Eleanor is definitely inquisitive, but I would say maybe because we see her as somebody who already knows a lot of the answers, I would say in that way, Beatrice kind of trumps her for Ravenclaw Nest, but I put Beatrice in Gryffindor. Oh, uh, yeah? Because, well, I think from what we see of her in this book, right? To me, she is, like, kind of a Neville Longbottom story, or even a Harry Potter story, where she's, like, not someone... Or a Ginny Weasley story. God damn, Ginny Weasley is so undervalued, you guys. <laughs> but, you know, somebody who, like, you don't... Who is so underestimated, or, like is forced into a circumstance that they don't feel like they can handle and then finds their true power and bravery. And I think too, that her, her idea about being a mentor to other witches comes across a little bit Gryffindory to me because I feel like it's kind of a justice sort of thing, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I don't know if I can back that up. I think that Beatrice is a Gryffindor. Fair enough. Where do you think Brody, uh, no, you said you agree about Brody and Ravenclaw. Uh, where do you think Adelaide is? Oh, you already oh, said Adelaide's, you agreed with Slytherin. Yeah. All right. Adelaide is Slytherin through and through. And yeah. she's a badass bitch. She is. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about what we're taking away from this book. I kind of already talked about mine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you, this is, this is a Maggie question now. Um, uh, <laughs> What am I taking away from this book? I don't know. I think that's a hard question because I don't think I ever think about what I'm taking away from any of my books. It's never like, you know, a conscious decision. And I feel like for me, I always figure it out, like, you know, after I'm actually done with it. Because like, yeah, I've read it twice. But full disclosure, for those of you who are curious, Harmony and I have been working with this book on this podcast for like months now. We've been dealing with this book since like, what, April, March? Like, really? Is that when we started? That's when we started reading because we weren't able to start recording for way longer. Right, right. So like Harmony and I have been with this book for a very large part of 2019 now. 
And I think that because we've been so embroiled in it in this this whole time, like for me, it's been actually kind of hard to get any kind of distance from it to figure out what I'm going to be taking away from it. Right. Because like I read it the first time and then we went away from it for a couple of weeks. And then it's just been like an entire summer of living with these characters. I think that something that I might take away is the idea. I don't know if it's like a takeaway in the sense that like it's not something I've thought about before. But, like, this book just really makes you value your, your female friendships, right? Uh, Harmony and I have talked earlier about the fact that we met in college and, like, our entire group of friends in college is a group of six female-identifying people who, like, really are just closely bonded in that way. And I think that, like, one of the takeaways I, ca- I came away from this was just, like, how... It, it was, like, a really nice reminder of how deeply valuable those friendships are. Not that I forgot or anything, right? But, like, we've been friends for six years now, which is a really long time. And after six years, you don't necessarily talk to the same six people every day and go, ah, oh, yes, I value you so deeply every single time, right? That's true. So, like, it was nice to, like, really have that, like, brought forth, I think, for me every time we talked about this book. Because that's what I was rem- reminded of every time was, like, yeah, we were talking about the books, but, like, I was thinking about all of my friends and how much they mean to me because of the way that, like, all of the characters meant a lot to each other in this book. Yeah, I really appreciate how much friendship is valued here. And I've talked a little bit before about being, like, isolated before I moved to New York City for a year. And now I'm, you know, connecting with my friend. I'm regularly talking to Maggie, which was hard while she was in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I think all of our friends who were kind of spread out right after college are more able to communicate, even if we're not able to see each other in person. True. One of our friends lives internationally now, and I'm not going to breach her privacy by saying where, but she lives really far away. And like figuring out that was hard. But we did it. We made it happen. Yeah. 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 So I think it is it is nice to know that like these same people still have your back. And I've been, you know, working on making new friendships since then. And, like, that's also nice. It's a little bit more difficult when you have, like, the same people. But, like, I don't know. As a grown-up, I've just, I've learned to value friendship a lot more than I did as a (laughs) not-grown-up. I will reiterate that the thing I'm taking with me from this book, though, is trusting my own inner strength. And learning to be more like Beatrice when she finally accepts that she's a witch. I mean, honestly, the change in opinion from when we first started talking about this book to now from Harmony about Beatrice is insanity. <laughs> what a journey Harmony has been on with this girl. <laughs> I know. I we think we we think that maybe some people in Nova Scotia, which is where our author is from, are listening to this podcast. And I am not nice to Beatrice in the beginning, but I have very recently been like, oh, I love Beatrice. Yeah. I always stand Beatrice. (laughs) Just to put it out there. Have your opinions changed on Eleanor? Meh. Kind of. (laughs) Yeah, I would would say yeah, for sure. But like, I don't think it was quite as dramatic as your like initial hatred for Beatrice was. I just, I think I hate to be archetyped. It's like that sort of thing where like people, like I did not like when Zoe Deschanel came out with New Girl, right? Because she was like singing and doing all this weird shit that I do in my everyday life, but it was like in a non-realistic way. And every part of that made me hate the show. So it's something like that. I don't like being, or like you don't like Gilmore Girls, which is crazy to me because Rory Gilmore is in a lot of ways very similar to Maggie Case and so she just can't stand Gilmore Girls. That has no reason. That's not the reason I don't like Gilmore Girls. No, I don't like Gilmore Girls because I grew up in a Connecticut. I mean, it's similar, but it doesn't have anything to do with Rory. It's just that I grew up in a very small town in Connecticut that was similar to whatever like fake town they made up. And it was just, like, very surreal and strange and frustrating to, like, watch a place similar to my hometown be on TV. And that's why I didn't want to watch it. But it didn't have anything to do with Rory. (laughs) Rory's not a very likable character in a lot of ways. It's okay. You are like I'm not a very likable person in a lot of ways. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You want to talk about books that we're reading? Or or do we want to do homework? Do we do books or homework first? I think we do books. Let's do homework. No, no, let's do homework first because I want to just be done with Riches of New York now. (laughs) What a great journey we've been on. I don't want to think about it for a week or two. (laughs) Except for on all the social media and for me with all of the editing. Anyway, 
I've got homework for the listeners this time around. At the very end of the book, we see Beatrice's little writing thing about advice for new witches. And not that you need to go ahead and change your religion or practice witchcraft or anything, but I want to challenge the listeners to all, like, you know, become witches in the sense that they feel that they are empowered and that they have control over their lives and that they're learning to trust their intuition a little bit more. And, you know, making the mundane magical to themselves and full of awe. So I think that everyone should go ahead and do that. Just, like, be a little witchy. You don't need to call yourself a witch. It's fine. But, you know, feel empowered. Sounds good. Max, you got any homework? (laughs) Um, No, I don't have any homework, I, I don't think. No, actually, my homework for you all is to go get your hands on a copy of our next book from like our local library or some or your local library or something like that. Or buy it, you know, support Roxanne Gay. Hashtag spoiler alert. Buy an independent bookstore if you can. Yeah. But also, your library is great. Support them too. support everyone. Yeah, support your library. Gosh, because our next read is going to be two short stories, technically three, but one of them is like two pages from Difficult Woman by Roxanne Gay. So you can expect in next week where we won't be posting, we're going to take a little bit of a break. That's true. So two weeks from today, you can expect us to be talking about noble things from the collection Difficult Woman by Roxanne Gay. Which is great. It's such a good book. The whole thing is great. We're only going to be talking about those two stories as we kind of transition into some spookier stuff. Uh, yeah, you should read the whole thing. The entire thing is amazing. It's amazing. It's wonderful. It makes me happy. And then sad. Actually, it makes me sad more than it makes me happy. But yeah. Yeah, it's a sad book. It, but it, it, it can make you happy. You, you're allowed to, like, enjoy reading things that are difficult to read. Yeah. Because it's a... Yeah, uh, 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 uh. Oh, Maggie's making a pun, if no one else caught that. <laughs> I didn't catch it. She had to point it out to me. Okay, what are you reading right now, Maggie? I'm reading two things. I'm reading Born by Jeff Vandermeer, and I'm reading my first ever manga. I'm reading the first three volumes of Berserk by Kentaro Miura. What's that about? Oh, my God. Berserk is about... You just go watch the anime, really. (laughs) Before I read? Isn't that like sacrilegious, Mags? No, I mean, the manga's really great, but it's complicated. Is this a DD pick? Well, actually, (laughs) yes. Berserk is my husband DD's favorite thing on the entire face of this whole planet. And there's like three movies and two iterations of the anime TV show, which we watched before we knew that there was a manga. And then he found out that there was a manga and he read like all 40 volumes and he's decided that I now need to read them. So (laughs) here I am. This is what we do for love here, folks. Uh, But I will say this. It's like a really cool story about like kind of feudal medieval sort of Japan and magic and um, like good versus evil. You know, it's pretty great. I will say that. Part of the reason it's my first ever manga, though, is because books like graphic novels and comic books and manga are, like, really difficult for me to mentally process. I don't know what it is, but something about me just processes words and exposition and, like, images separately. So it's really difficult for me to, like, read these kinds of books because I just really miss the exposition of like the words explaining things besides dialogue yeah and i feel like i end up spending way too much time like looking at the pictures which are gorgeous the art in this book is crazy so we'll see how far i get how fast but you know we're making the dive we're making the dive we'll maybe do some comic books in the future i have i have something planned out and maybe at least one guest but i like comics it helps i think if you think of them as cartoons yeah Maybe. I don't, I, I really, I, I don't know what it is. It's just two different parts of my brain process these things. Yeah. It's hard to like smush them together. I get that. What are you reading? I'm reading, I don't think it's a feminist book, but I was looking for something magical. So Mr. Norrell and Jonathan Strange, I think, or Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, is that? Yeah, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I have that on my TBR shelf. It's oh. a very long book. Yeah, it is. But I'm, like, really enjoying it. Nice! Yeah, even though it's, I generally just, so people know, don't read 
a ton of books with, like, only male protagonists, right? Like, I cannot get through war stories. I can't really even watch war movies because I just, I need, I need some sort of, like, femme-identifying person to relate to. And I'm only 30 pages in, so maybe we'll get one, but... I am enjoying it despite the fact that we don't have any strong female presence yet. Let's see. Oh, I'm also maybe going to start audiobooking. I kind of tried uh, a book that Maggie recommended to me. It's called Something About a Bear. Oh, The Bear and the Nightingale by Catherine Arden. Yes, The Bear and the Nightingale by Catherine Arden. I tried to do it, but I was also distracted. So I need to be in like a better headspace where I'm not distracted. And then I'll, I'll let you guys know how that goes. <laughs> it's a slow burn first book, and then the second two books are just like... Nice, nice. Okay, do we want to say anything else? Oh, we are on iTunes now. We are definitely on iTunes. I'll be maybe putting that into some of our previous episodes, because now we're on iTunes, and you should definitely rate and review us. But please, nice reviews. Uh, You know, if you don't like us, just send us an email. You don't need to review us. It's fine. Don't ruin our stars. I don't know if anyone is going to because we have yet to have any reviews to my knowledge, but we're at the time that we're recording this, but we're on iTunes. Rate and review us. Okay. <laughs> okay. Bye. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly. And it's by the days. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.